This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 427, May the 28th, 1999. This evening, Andrew Sandlin and Mark Rushduni are here with me, and they want uh, the discussion to be related more to the origins of Chalcedon. Am I right in that? Yes, the origins and the future. Very yeah. good. And what makes Chalcedon distinct from other Christian organizations and what we stand for? Well, that may take a lot more than an hour. <laughs> well, we can, we can add to it later then. That's yeah. fine. I very early uh, thought of Chalcedon. I was a student at the university. I could see the progressive drift of the Christian community and a Western civilization in the direction of moral and social anarchy. The anarchy would come in probably in the name of a world order because the more power is centralized at the top, the greater is the anarchy at the roots. At the university, I took courses and did an extensive amount of reading aimed at answering the question of the future of culture of Christian culture in particular. I had stacked privileges, so I would spend hours every day in the stacks at the University of California Library at Berkeley, an excellent library in those days. Now, I realized that uh, the church was a part of the drift. The church was accommodating itself more and more to the world. I felt very strongly that something had to be done about that. I looked in more than one direction. One direction was that of uh, an interest in the Mennonites and Hutterites whose solution had been really to withdraw from the world. And I felt, with all due respect to such groups, this was not the answer. Neither was it accommodation with the world, as was going on in the mainline churches and in varying degrees in fundamentalism. The thing that struck me most uh, emphatically about fundamentalism was that it did not have the answer not only because of its theological defects but because of its underlying rationalism. Philosophically fundamentalism was rationalism. Its apologetics 
consistently is rationalistic. So what was the answer? At that time, I had not yet become acquainted with Van Til. In fact, he was not yet published. As a result, I did a great deal of thinking. Calvinism was the premise of the thinking. And I felt that there had to be some kind of agency or institution or academic community dedicated not simply to teaching, but also to learning primarily. We forget that the medieval university was of two kinds. The predominant one was the university that taught students. But one of the institutions out of which that developed was one of a collection of scholars, monks at that time, whose concern was to know the issues, to answer the issues intellectually and theologically. Of course, there are premises were often philosophically unsound, but this idea of a collection of scholars dedicated to making the faith relevant was most appealing to me. And so I began to think very early of uh, uh, such an institution. I went to the Indian Reservation first because I felt that in order to be a relevant thinker and pastor, I had to make the faith relevant to Indians. Of the two groups in the world, the hardest to reach for Christ were first the Muslims, with a strong and militant faith, aggressively and often brutally hostile to any other faith. And then the Indians with a broken culture, radically disinterested in anything, true existentialists living for the moment. I felt that if I could make the faith relevant to the Indians, I could make it relevant to the world at large. It was on the reservation that I first came into contact with the writings of Cornelius Van Til, his uh, New Modernism, which was revolutionary in its impact on me because it answered all my questions and was very clearly in the same direction I was, although far beyond me. After that, when I left the reservation, I began to think further of these things, talk to one or two close friends about them, primarily Dr. Gilbert Dendulk. 
On one occasion, Dr. Dundalk took me and we flew together to see a very wealthy reformed believer to try to persuade him to give funds to such a thing. He had the capability to give extensively. But of course ideas are not popular. More practical, to use a common term in such circles, concerns are what uh, people with money want. Also, they want to start big. So I finally incorporated Calcedon in the early 60s, about, oh, I don't recall when I went through the legal process, but it was well before 62 or 3, I think. We were not able to begin operation until fall of 65, when I moved to Southern California, where various persons very much interested in the faith wanted me to teach them what the faith was about. They were not content with what they got if they attended a church. Well, my purpose when I began Chalcedon was stated in the very first one-page mimeographed letter. Sixty copies printed, about fifty to fifty-five mailed out to various persons. I used there the term Christian Reconstruction. This has been the goal. Christians have a duty to reconstruct the world, the church, society, every area of life and thought in terms of the whole Word of God. Yes. Now, if there are some questions you'd like to ask me, I'd be happy to try to answer them. Yes, Rush. A lot of our listeners perhaps may not know why you, you selected the, the term Chalcedon. Um, would you sort of elaborate on why why that should be the name of, of our organization? Yes, because one of the problems very early in Christianity was that uh, the attitude of too many men who were converted, and especially of the thinkers, was what they wanted was Christianity plus. Or they wanted the thinking of the world plus Christianity. They could not see its exclusive claim to the truth. As a result, the church very early became saturated with Greco-Roman thinking and philosophy. This corrupted it. Some medieval thinkers began to purge such thinking from the church's doctrines, but 
Not until Calvin was there a clear-cut resolution of the matter. God the Sovereign has given us his infallible word, which gives us the key to every area of life and thought. We do not need to find our presuppositions in anything except the Bible. Well, Van Til also spoke in passing, but more than once of the centrality of Chalcedon to all of this. So that confirmed me and my feeling of the importance of that council. I had, as a student in seminary, been intensely interested in the implications of Chalcedon. It was interesting that I found next to nothing about it. Writers simply referred to it as an historical event and paid little or no attention to it. Certainly, for the Middle Ages, Chalcedon was forgotten. With the Reformation, the same thing happened, although at first it had a clear-cut impact on the thinking of the Reformers. Little by little, they dropped it. But what Chalcedon so clearly expressed was that apart from Christ and the Word of God, we can have no presupposition in any area of life and thought. And as you point out in Foundations of Social Order, it, it's the foundation of Western liberty because yes. no human institution can be divinized, whether it's the the church or, or the family or the state or anything else. And that was the fundamental key to your thinking, wasn't it? It certainly was. I feel that uh, one of the latter-day weaknesses of Protestantism is that it has neglected church history. Oh, yes, indeed. I doubt that the, out of a hundred pastors, you would find more than a handful who even knew what the name Chalcedon referred to. We have, of course, publicized its meaning somewhat, so it's not as barren a picture as it was when we began. Rush, a lot of people aren't aware that when you started talking about many of these things, uh, they were quite unpopular, and there was a real inertia about these things. I remember asking you one time about your post-millennialism back in the 50s and early 60s and what it felt like, and you responded with one word, lonely. Mm -hmm. Today, uh, of course, there's a great revival of post-millennialism, yes. largely as a result of Chalcedon's work and those influenced by Chalcedon. At the time, what were your, what were your thoughts about all of this, the fact that, that you and only a few others, if them, we're standing so firmly for this. Well, I, <laughs> I did not think much about that. I knew what I had to do, and I thought the Lord would bring his own to my side. Now, I will have to say that uh, after a few years, 
and speaking across the country to great numbers of people at conferences, I was surprised that uh, in spite of the interest, so few chose to revamp their theology. Most went on with their uh, piecemeal, disorganized preaching so that I found it not uncommon for people to have been in Bible-believing churches most of their life and apart from knowing certain uh, verses by heart and they had a good repertoire of memorized verses, they really did not know what the various books of the Bible taught. They could not give you a consistent biblical theology. They could affirm a belief in the salvation by the blood of Christ, but they did not know what the fullness of the doctrine of the atonement was and implies. So it was a very superficial kind of knowledge. And irrelevant, necessarily, then. Yes. Rush, you were um, obviously doing a lot of writing at the time. Give us some of your observations. Um, of course, you were at the Volcker Foundation for a while and doing a couple of excellent books on American history, uh, you know, this independent republic and mm -hmm. nature of the American system. Um, give us a sense of, of what you were thinking at the time. And, and, of course, you were preaching also, traveling around preaching yes. and writing. What were, your, what were your thoughts about uh, publication and what needed to be said at the time? Well, by what standard was published, as was uh, intellectual schizophrenia, because Gilbert Dendalk uh, provided the funds for its publication. As a matter of fact, uh, Dendalk raised the issue and uh, Van Til seconded it. I would not have written by what standard if Van Til had not uh, been wholeheartedly in favor of it. Not only so, but I submitted it chapter by chapter to him to make sure that I did not err in describing his thinking. He was most gracious about his comments. It's interesting, Rush. I brought tonight a copy of By What Standard. Near the end of it, you write a, a brief chapter, and I've annotated it at the top seeds of Christian Reconstruction all the way back in 19, I believe it was 1957, wasn't it, Rush? When it was originally published? 1958, although I'd been working on it from 56. If you'll indulge me, I'd like to read one of these final paragraphs because it's so powerful. You say, but the gospel is for all of life. The good news is precisely that the whole of life is restored and fulfilled through Jesus Christ that in the counsel of God, the kingdom is destined to triumph in every sphere of life. This gospel cannot be proclaimed and the dominion of the kingdom extended except on Christian presuppositions. The answer to the question, how wide a gospel do we have, is simply this. 
as wide as life and creation, as wide as time and eternity. It rests in the decree of the self-contained and autonomous God. It is a faith grounded on a truly systematic theology. That, to me, it seems, Rush, is really a summation of what Chalcedon is all about, isn't it? Yes. And I feel that uh, Chalcedon's future is very important. If people do not support it and enable it, not only to continue but to grow, I don't see much future for uh, the faith in this country. Now, that may be a somewhat arrogant statement, but prior to Chalcedon, no organization promoted uh, theonomy, post-millennialism, the Chalcedonian premises, and more, all solidly based, based on the infallible Word of God. Now, there are now a number of very fine groups in the country, but their objectives are somewhat more limited, I, I'm, I'm afraid. At 83, I know that I won't be here long. I'm very happy the writers of Chalcedon were continuing the work, and I trust people will continue to support it so that it grows. Because unless we have this wholeness of faith, yes. not an emphasis on just one area, right. but on the totality, I think we're in for deep, deep trouble. It's not enough to say one has to believe in predestination you have to develop the implications of what that means. It's not enough to say, I believe in creationism, six-day creationism. You have to point out how basic that is, how foundational to the whole of theology. So we have a fair number now who are affirming the faith but they're not developing its implications. And isn't that really one of Chalcedon's distinctives, how often we've talked, Rush, about those, for example, who affirm the five points of Calvinism, necessary though they are and true though they are, but they really don't, from those points, extrapolate out to what that actually means in life and society. Yes, To me, exactly. that's our distinctive, is it not? Yes. I know in one country, which is a bit more reformed than others, although straying badly. Almost every issue of uh, the major reformed publication of that country deals with the five points of Calvinism. And that's about all, right? <laughs> uh, that's about all, and they're all repetitive and barren of any development of the implications. Now, we have too much of that. Yes. There's no solid thinking, no development. That's right, and Rush, that's where you and Chalcedon have made such a valuable contribution. I'll never forget first reading Foundations of Social Order and other things you said about the implications of, of Orthodox Christology. I'd never really um, encountered that before, 
that clearly is is a Chalcedonian or our our Chalcedon Chalcedon Foundation's uh, distinctive, and I think it's something we've got to press forward more fully. One area I wanted to mention too, Rush, is we, we've you've constantly and we have constantly emphasized education, and have made some great inroads there. It's hard for people to realize back in the early '60s, the vast majority of Christians had their children in in public schools. Oh yes. And would and would uh, argue for it uh, with great defensiveness. Not only so, but they regarded it as unchristian to talk about Christian schools and unpatriotic. Yes, and uh, they would regard it as an insult. I'm a graduate of the public schools. Do you mean to say I'm defective in my faith that I'm not uh, as Christian as I ought to be? Well, the answer was obviously yes, because they did not know much. They affirmed everything and knew little. And we have had a great influence, uh, you specifically, in, in the Christian school movement and, uh, and also the home school movement. And it seems to me, Rush, as I, in my limited observation, that the great expansion of God's kingdom in the future seems to be as a result of, of Christian education yes. and uh, training up a whole generation to be warriors for the faith. Is that, do you agree Very with that? Very definitely true. Christian education, the schools and the home schools are a revolutionary force in the country. Rush, quickly, over the years, we don't want to spend a long time on this, but there certainly has been hostility to our work. As you look back, has the hostility been basically from inside the church, from conservative, uh, from liberals, from secular conservatives, or so forth? As you give us a sense on on how that's developed. Yes, I had my schooling in hostilities before I started Calcedon. On the Indian reservation, of course, my defense of the Indians in several instances, including a notorious trial, did gain a lot of enmity. The Indians do indeed have their faults. They're a fallen people in most cases, and their lifestyle is anything but godly. On the other hand, they are routinely abused and exploited by too many whites in the area. My position as a friend of the Indians brought all kinds of hostility and hatred on my head. So I was used to that by the time a few years later, more than a decade, I began Calcedon. What was surprising was that the most bitter hostility came from Reformed circles. Mm. Why was uh, that, Rush? Oh, they had departed so from the Reformed faith that uh, if you tried to develop the implications of it, it was a challenge to them. Right. In other words, so, demonstrating their hypocrisy. Yes. On the whole, it was the Christian community that first manifested hostility. Certainly, the uh, 
long article in Christianity today uh, did no good. It was very clearly hostile. It made no attempt to understand and very clearly misrepresented my position. This was the one from about 10 or 15 years ago, right? Oh, yes, mm -hmm. easily that. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, more than that, it was in the 70s, I believe. I was thinking about the one in the 80s with the, the, the cover story on the democracy and, the, and uh, reconstruction. Is that the one you're referring to? I don't know. It was the uh, main major story. Yes, the, right. Uh, Christianity Today. Mm -hmm. That was picked up by the non-Christian community, and it still continues to be quoted. I had uh, an interview in a newspaper by a Presbyterian elder two full pages with only half a sentence from something in the interview. What he did was to quote from the files of all the hostile articles. So I've not had much uh, good report from the media. However, this has not, I believe, hurt us. It isn't pleasant, but it's also irrelevant. God has brought to us those whom he has chosen to do so. And we've thrived in the face of all these things. So, I believe we will continue to thrive in the future. Why don't we talk about some of the um, distinctive of... Uh, where Chalcedon is coming from in its thinking. You've mentioned Calvinism. Um, we ought to develop biblical law a little bit more. Of course, when you started Chalcedon, I think officially we, you got started uh, in 1965, uh, the whole idea of biblical law was pretty much unheard of in, in churches. Uh, dispensationalism in a, in a sort of a vague way had really seeped into mm -hmm. virtually all the churches and there was a distinction between the Old Testament and the New yes. uh, even in Reformed churches grace versus law had, had crept in e to uh, just about every church um, that's changed somewhat although not enough in recent years um, Can you, when did you see a shift starting to take place um, in people's willingness to accept um, biblical law? It seems like increasingly now, maybe it was my perception, but it seems like when things politically started going so bad and Christians became politically active, they needed a rationale. And I think some of them were thinking of it as a rationale, mm -hmm. not as biblical, Good they point. needed a reason to oppose Good what point. they knew was wrong and what they what they saw, and then they started using biblical ideas. Some of them still being antinomians in their theology, but they had to keep going back to the Bible, including the Old Testament, to oppose homosexuality, 
right. uh, to uh, support capital punishment, punishment, to oppose abortion. abortion. They started mm-hmm. quoting biblical passages that their theology told them um, didn't apply. Theological schizophrenia, yeah. Right. Um, I guess a lot of that happened maybe in the, in the 70s. Uh, when did you start to see a, a shift becoming noticeable that people were willing to accept the concept of biblical law, if not theologically, at least mm-hmm. in a practical sense? Yes, in a piecemeal sense. Mm-hmm. Well, at the time I was a child, while nobody affirmed biblical law, it was still more or less assumed to be a, a part of our faith so that no churchman would have argued against, uh, say, uh, the biblical position on adultery or homosexuality. In fact, I can recall the question being asked at various midweek meetings that I attended in uh, mainline churches at times. And the answer was a bit uh, embarrassed. They were for the laws, but perhaps the penalties now in our society have to be different. Nonetheless, they did not feel that we could do anything but treat that law very seriously. They were vague about it. Well, then suddenly, overnight, the intelligent man's opinion was that uh, homosexuality was a lifestyle that was acceptable. Adultery was a personal matter and not a social or religious concern. This began to scare a lot of people in the church. They became aware about the same time of my position, and they didn't like it. But neither did they like the position that the world was taking. So they were caught betwixt and between. Some of them said they wished I had made an affirmation of the biblical position, but stopped short of the penalties. They wanted to say this or that is still bad, but uh, the penalties of law no longer apply, just the moral standards. So they were in a very ambivalent position. I recall hearing more than one uh, debate over the issue on radio, and the uh, Christian was nailed every time on the fact that he was not ready to go all the way with the law. And the uh, champions of homosexuality, because this was one that was particularly debated, Uh, could call attention to the fact, how can you believe God's law and only believe part of it? Right. This position became obviously ridiculous. And that began to bring some people to us. 
A great many others knew we were right, but were afraid to step out of line and admit it. So the whole discussion did call attention uh, to our stand. In fact, most people seemed to believe that we had uh, one position in all of biblical law. These are people who did not know the book, and that was our position on homosexuality. That was so controversial. Well, they've still not taken a stand on it. But a lot of ordinary people who have seen what happens on the ground floor and have become familiar with the abuse of boys are convinced now that God was requiring what they should believe. And Rush, not only homosexuality, but another point a lot of people aren't aware of is that you wrote very clearly and decisively on the issue of abortion oh, yes. before it was ever, uh, ever legalized and before it was ever really an issue in this country. That's right. I wrote a Cal Seedon report, a paper, Abortion by Killing, I think, was the title. Uh, killing like by Abortion that. or something. It's in... Uh, it's in Roots of Reconstruction. Roots of Reconstruction, yes. That was reprinted again and again. We reprinted uh, that issue at least once. But I know other groups wrote in from all over the country and asked if they could reprint it. The trouble was that uh, when it came to legislators, they were afraid to take a stand. There were too many powerful organized groups who were favoring abortion as later also homosexuality. And our view on biblical law has often been um been slandered as though the main emphasis of ours is law as it applies to politics, which is not no. the case. I wish that people would read your excellent chapter, The Biblical Doctrine of Government, uh, in uh, Politics of Guilt and Pity, where you point out that the main government is the self-government of the godly man under God's yes. uh, authority, as though what we're really after, they say, is some sort of political coup and uh, the imposition of biblical law politically, when actually we believe just the opposite. It should yes. start in our families and churches and so forth. Right. Biblical government begins with the self-government of a Christian man, then the family, and you build up from there. The whole biblical system of government is one of rule by elders. And in... Uh, Exodus, as well as in the first chapter of Deuteronomy, we are told that Moses chose at God's command, in the one instance the term is elders, the other captains, one out of ten families. And then there would be a captain over fifty families, and then one over a hundred. And in fact, such courts ruled Christendom for centuries. Even in uh, 
of course, in Israel, you had the Sanhedrin, the 70 elders of Israel, which later in Christendom became the College of Cardinals, 70 cardinals, all of them originally laymen. Moreover, even into the colonial era and slightly beyond in some areas, the hundred courts were the basic area of government in the United States or in the colonial America. And yet, to my knowledge, there's only one book that's ever been written on the subject of the hundreds courts. And yet, that was Christendom's main area of government. And it rested on the family. The term elders referred to the heads of households. So, government in a biblical sense begins with the family, the self-government of the Christian man, then the family. And a lot of churchmen uh, have been very unforgiving of that position, haven't they? Because it, it tends to take tyrannical authority out of their hands and to put it in the hands of, of godly fathers, and they deeply resent that. Yes. Well, the uh, medieval church soon became uh, repressive of... Uh, elderships and uh, family power. The Reformation restored it, but very quickly became hostile to family rule. Some churches continued to have government within the church uh, with membership counted by families. But in other respects, the authority of the head of the household was diminished in the church. We have really turned uh, government upside down with everything we have done. We have strengthened everything at the top and worked to destroy it at the base. And men would rather be ruled by a messianic state than by biblical law, it seems, yes. even in the church. Yes. Let me shift gears and talk about... Um, something else that people really find repugnant about Chalcedon, perhaps even more than biblical law, and that is our view of godly dominion. I read an interesting statement recently, Rush, by a Reformation scholar, Roland Baton, who said, when Christianity takes itself seriously, it must either renounce the world or master it. Yes. I thought that was a powerful statement, and of course, Excellent. our view is that it must be mastered. Yes. You, of course, had, had understood and developed the Calvinistic idea of the dominion mandate, but what you were able to recognize is, is that there had to be an explicitly biblical basis for that. Yes. Which was the Bible. Right. Can you discuss that for a minute and, and how you understood that and what Chalcedon has done along that line? There's so much of that question. I don't know. Okay, I'm sorry. How you began first to understand uh, the dominion mandate and, and how it should apply in Chalcedon's uh, sphere and what Chalcedon should do about it. The dominion mandate was to Adam and to all men born of Adam. The dominion mandate came to him in the Garden of Eden. It then applied to him as the head of a household 
of family. Dominion begins in the family and with the family and grows from that point outward so that uh, the dominion mandate has been very much lost in this century within the church and within the family. I think it's a sad fact that uh, the authority of men has been so badly undercut. Now, what was the rest of your question or the next part? Well, how um, that's the foundation for godly dominion. Uh, how has Chalcedon, in your estimation, really trumpeted that position and how have we applied it and how have we um, been able to to enhance the understanding of dominion in uh, in the church and among those that are supporters and so forth? Well, we have taught these things consistently from day one. We have stressed the authority of the Christian school and the necessity for it and the home school and have promoted both very extensively all over the world. Now, that has been a major force in reestablishing the authority of the family and of the head of the household so that no one can understand the future of the family apart from the role of Christian school and home school have played. Another aspect of dominion that I was thinking about, Rush, was an emphasis that uh, it's interesting. It's uh, it's not seen very much, well, until r relatively recently, and that is on godly charity as a substitute yes. for uh, state uh, action and, and, and redistribution of wealth. Uh, and that's something, you know, with your brother's ministry, obviously, and with what Peter Hammond is doing, and Peter Hammond is doing, and many others, that's mm -hmm. something that we've really revived as a Yes, very, very strongly. And I trust that everyone listening will be in prayer for my brother and his wife in particular. They are at present working in Kosovo. Very few people, if any, are going into Kosovo now. They're all trying to get out of it. But they are going in with the gospel with food, with clothing, with any and everything they can do to help. They have brought out children desperately in need of medical care and have seen to it that they have been cared for. Why don't we talk a little bit about post-millennialism? It's something you've emphasized um, through Chalcedon. And it's another area in which there's been a, a great deal of attention to post-millennialism and even more than attention now given in the church to the legitimacy of the post-mill position is the fact that dispensationalism has taken a real nosedive as far as its credibility. Um, when you started, um, dispensationalism just seemed 
orthodoxy. It, well, it, it seemed like its position in the church was was untouchable, yes. and, and now it's being really abandoned wholesale. Um, what to what do you attribute that? That the sudden decline of uh, dispensationalism to the fact that we challenged it up to the time that Chalcedon began its ministry. It was uh, hardly held by anyone. Uh, Lorraine Bettner held to it. Only a handful of men followed him in that. To me, I grew up with that belief. To be a Christian was to believe in the triumph of Christ in his kingdom. That's what the whole faith was about. I was shocked when I encountered amillennialism, which seemed to me a horrible belief to a post-millennial faith. As a matter of fact, I found that uh, more than a few uh, pastors were unwilling to have me speak if I were to bring up post-millennialism implicitly or directly because it was so appealing to the people. And it still is. So both those opinions are crumbling. Our time is almost up. I'd like to suggest to all of you that you do uh, write to us about what you'd like to have us consider. Do you want more of Chalcedon's history? More about church history? More about current affairs? You tell us. We'll do our best to help. Is that right? Oh, absolutely. And and Rush, I want to mention, uh, I'm sure that many listening would agree with this, that I'm very grateful for the incalculable influence that you've had on my life and my family and, and this country. Uh, you are growing old now, and you deserve for people to tell you that. I'm very grateful for what you've done. Thank you, and I do appreciate the gratitude of so many, many of our uh, readers and listeners. At 83, I know that my time is limited, and whatever it is, it'll be good because if I die, I'll be home with the Lord and with so many, many loved ones whom it will be a joy to see. If I live, it'll be because there's something more for me to do. Well, thank you all for listening, and God bless you.